turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter number 9 tonight. This is not the message I was going to preach this morning. It was the message I was going to preach tonight. Now, we saw how that went this morning, so we'll see how that goes tonight. Exodus chapter number 9, and uh, if you are a student of the Bible, you know the part of Scripture that we're in, that we are in the uh, ten plagues over Egypt. And uh, God is leading out His people with an high hand and performing great and miraculous things. And it, it would help us, we're not going to do it tonight, time won't permit it, but it would help us to study each and every miracle in depth. And uh, we cannot do that for time's sake tonight. But I do want to say a word about several of them leading up to the one that we're going to look at this evening and focus on in our text. Exodus chapter number 9, and I'd like to begin reading in verse number 13. Exodus chapter 9, verse number 13. The Bible says, And the Lord said unto Moses, Rise up early in the morning, And stand before Pharaoh, and say unto him, Thus saith the Lord God of the Hebrews, Let my people go, that they may serve me. For I will at this time send all my plagues upon thine heart, and upon thy servants, and upon thy people, that thou mayest know that there is none like me in all the earth. For now I will stretch out my hand, that I may smite thee and thy people with pestilence, and thou shalt be cut off from the earth. And in very deed for this cause have I raised thee up, for to show in thee my power, and that my name may be declared throughout all the earth. As yet exaltest thou thyself against my people, that thou wilt not let them go. Behold, tomorrow, about this time, I will cause it to rain a very grievous hail, such as hath not been in Egypt since the foundation thereof, even until now. Send therefore now, and gather thy cattle, and all that thou hast in the field. For upon every man and beast which shall be found in the field, they shall not and shall not be brought home. The hail shall come down upon them and they shall die. He that feared the word of the Lord among the servants of Pharaoh made his servants and his cattle flee into the houses. And he that regarded not the word of the Lord left his servants and his cattle in the field. The Lord said unto Moses, Stretch forth thine hand toward heaven that there may be hail in all the land of Egypt upon man and upon beast and upon every herb of the field throughout the land of Egypt. Moses stretched forth his rod toward heaven, and the Lord sent thunder and hail, and the fire ran along upon the ground, and the Lord rained hail upon the land of Egypt. So there was hail and fire mingled with the hail, very grievous, such as there was none like it in all the land of Egypt since it became a nation. And the hail smote throughout all the land of Egypt, all that was in the field, both man and beast, and the hail smote every herb of the field and break every tree of the field. We'll stop there and pray. Father, we love you tonight. Thank you for letting us be in your house. Help us as we study your word. May we have our hearts open to the truth of it. May, Lord, you have complete free course and liberty to minister in our hearts and minds that which would bring you glory and that which would draw us closer unto Christ. Lord, I pray for those whose hearts were touched this morning. Lord, that acknowledge their lost condition. I pray you continue to work in their heart. Tell them you love them. Show them you love them. Continue to work in their hearts and minds. Lord, I know you love them enough to not give up on them. Lord, we ought not give up on them either. Help us to pray for them as well. And Lord, that we might see them eternally saved. Father, we love you. We thank you for what you have done and will do. And we ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. In Exodus chapter number 9, the text that we have read, we have read of the plague of the hail the fire and the brimstone that God rained down upon Egypt. Now, this is not the first of the plagues that God sent to Egypt. In fact, you know probably that there were ten plagues 
in totality. And if we go back through this story, we'll find that six of them have already taken place. And the plague of the hail is the seventh plague that will transpire. The six before it each provide an important lesson. I told you I wish we could go through and study everything in depth. But we find as we just give a quick survey of them that each of them teach us an important lesson regarding three things. First, regarding the sureness of God's Word. What was God trying to teach Pharaoh and the Egyptians and the children of Israel? That when God speaks, He means it. That His Word is true. That His Word is unbreakable. That it is immutable. And that the Word of God is a sincere and sure thing. The second thing that these plagues teach us is the strength of God's power. He wanted them to understand that He truly is God and He has power over all things. And then the third is the severity of God's judgment. In other words, He wanted them to know that when He said something, He meant it. He wanted them to know that when He gave them a a warning that He had the power to carry it out. And He wanted them to know that if they did not heed that warning, that surely there would be severe judgment upon their lives. How many of you know that even you and I sitting as a child of God in this New Testament dispensation of grace, those are three things we better learn in our lives. We better learn. Help me now. You with me? You all right? I know you feel like it's 7.30 instead of 6.30, but that ain't even how time change works. It's really like it's 5.30, so I'm going to preach till 9.30 and we're all going to feel good about it. Amen? you got to help me preach tonight. How many of you know those are three things we better learn too? We better learn the Word of God is true. That what it says, it doesn't say just take up space on a page. It says it because it is true for your life and for mine. We better learn that the strength of God's power, He has the ability to change our lives, to touch our lives. He has the ability to build things where nothing could be built. He has the ability to grow things where could nothing grow. On the other hand, He has the ability to tear things down that we thought we built strong. We better recognize that we're not playing with a, a, an impotent God. We're playing with a God or we are dealing with a God that is a powerful God that can work in our lives to whatever brings Him glory. And then we better learn about the severity of God's judgment. Now somebody's going to say, oh, but preacher, when I got born again, I never had to worry about Judgment. I don't know who told you that. I understand that our sin, meaning the penalty of our sin, has already been dealt with at Calvary. And I'm in no risk of dying and going to hell. I'm in no risk of of God deciding to bring up those charges against me again because they've been answered in the cross of Calvary. But there's more than one type of judgment, friend. And you understand and I understand as students of the Bible that God most certainly judges His people. If we live in disobedience, we can expect the judgment of God. If we live in rebellion, we can expect the judgment of God. In fact, let me tell you something. You can expect it a lot sooner than you can expect God to judge these people out on the streets. Because the Bible says judgment begins first at the house of God. It's going to start with you and me. Hey, one of these days, uh, whenever they stand before a great white throne of judgment, God will pour out judgment on them. But He ain't going to wait that long for you and me. He'll deal with us even this very day. Every son whom the Lord loveth, He chasteneth. He scourgeth every one of His own. Judgment begins at the house of God. Man, these are three lessons we need to learn in our lives. So when we look at these plagues that were given, what do we learn about these three things? The sureness of God's Word, the strength of God's power, and the severity of God's judgment. Turn back with me to Exodus chapter 7. Exodus chapter 7. And let's just start to notice these plagues. We'll just sort of walk through them, read a few verses. We won't do a deep dive. But I want you to notice what they teach us about these things. In Exodus chapter 7, verse number 17, we have the first plague 
that is given. And that is the river being turned to blood. We assume it to be the Nile River. I, I don't know if the Bible says it's the Nile, but uh, certainly that would be in keeping with the geography of that part of the world. And it says in verse 17, Thus saith the Lord, In this thou shalt know that I am the Lord. Behold, I will smite with the rod that is in mine hand upon the waters which are in the river. They shall be turned to blood. And in the fish that is in the river shall die, and the river shall stink. And the Egyptians shall loathe to drink of the water of the river. Look down verse 24. It says, And all the Egyptians digged round about the river for water to drink, for they could not drink of the water of the river. This plague taught them the realness of God's power. That they were not just dealing in abstract realms of speculative theology, but they were dealing with a God that would reach down and touch the very life that they depended on. The Nile River was what fed all of that part of the world. It was what sustained all of them. And God would reach down and touch that very thing. He wanted them to understand. What did He say back in verse 17? Thou shalt know that I am the Lord. He wanted to know He's a real God. That He wasn't a fake God like the gods that they worshipped. He was not just an imaginary God like the gods they worshipped. By the way, each of these plagues targeted a specific false god in the land of Egypt. They worshipped the Nile River. God wanted to show them, hey, listen, uh, you can worship that Nile River, but I can just reach down with my finger and destroy it and make it loathsome to you. He wanted to know the realness of God's judgment. Look over in chapter number 8 with me. Chapter number 8. Look at verse number 2. This is the second miracle uh, plague. It's the plague of the frogs. It says, and if thou refuse to let them go, Moses speaking to Pharaoh, behold, I will smite all thy borders with frogs, and the river shall bring forth frogs abundantly, which shall go up and come into thine house and into thy bedchamber and upon thy bed and into the house of thy servants and upon thy people and into thine ovens and into thy kneading crops. And the frogs shall come up both on thee and upon thy people and upon all thy servants. He wanted to teach them the reach of God's judgment. You see, whenever he turned the river to blood, all Pharaoh had to do was say, hey, you servants, go out and find some water, dig around somewhere and find me something to drink. It didn't really affect him. Uh, can I tell you, we live in a society today that is two-tiered in nature. Uh, we live in a society where there are a, an elite group of people who have insulated themselves from the impacts of the choices that they are making for our society. Uh, they are tearing society down uh, limb by limb, uh, brick by brick, but it don't affect them. They've got enough money. They've got enough stability. They've got enough protection that it never touches them. Can I tell you this? God has the ability to reach out and touch them where they are. And in our life, we may feel as though we have situated ourselves in such a way that God can't reach out and touch our lives, but we're fooling ourselves, friend. He wanted Pharaoh to know that God could put frogs in his bed as easy as he could put them in his servants' beds. So the frogs teach us the reach of God's judgment. Look down to verse 16 of chapter number 8. It says, And the Lord said unto Moses, Say unto Aaron, Stretch out thy rod and smite the dust of the land, that it may become lice throughout all the land of Egypt. And they did so. For Aaron stretched out his hand with his rod and smote the dust of the earth, and it became lice in man and in beast. All the dust of the land became lice throughout all the land of Egypt. Now notice this, and the magicians did so with their enchantments to bring forth lice, but they could not. So there were lice upon man and upon beast. Then the magicians said unto Pharaoh, this is the finger of God 
And Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he hearkened not unto them as the Lord had said. Now this is an interesting plan. Up to this point, the magicians of Pharaoh have been able through powers of darkness to replicate everything that has taken place. They could bring heartache, they could bring misery, but they couldn't necessarily send it away. It took God to relieve that misery. But now here's a plague not even they can replicate. Why is that? Because he is bringing forth, he is creating life. He's taking uh, inanimate sand that has no sentient life to it and he is creating it anew as these lice, as a sentient being. And you know what they said? They said, this is God doing this. We can't do this. (laughs) It teaches us the rank of God's power. In other words, his power ranks above all things. Hey, listen, the devil most assuredly has power and don't you underestimate him. But my Bible still says, greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. There's no power greater than His. Look down in verse 21 of chapter 8. It says this, uh, Moses speaking unto Pharaoh says, Else if thou wilt not let my people go, behold, I will send swarms of flies upon thee and upon thy servants and upon thy people and into thy houses, and the houses of the Egyptians shall be full of swarms of flies, and also the ground whereon they are. Listen to what the Lord says in verse 22. And I will sever in that day the land of Goshen, in which my people dwell, where the Israelites dwell, that no swarms of flies shall be there. To the end thou mayest know that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth, and I will put a division between my people and thy people. Tomorrow shall this sign be. This is the plague of the flies. You know what it teaches us? The righteousness of God's power. The righteousness of God's judgment. Here's what God says. I have the ability to send out swarms of flies, but I can draw a line invisible to you, but known and seen by those flies, and they'll proceed no further than that line. I have the ability to preserve my people from the punishment I'm pouring out upon people that hate me and rebel against me. It reminds me that we have a righteous God who never has collateral damage in His dealings with mankind. He has the perfect ability to work in my life or your life to spare some, to not spare others. Everything He does, He does exactly right. We see the righteousness of God's judgment. Look over in chapter 9. We're getting close to our text. Aren't you excited? Look at verse 3. It says, Behold, the hand of the Lord is upon thy cattle, which is in the field, upon the horses, upon the asses, upon the camels, upon the oxen, and upon the sheep. There shall be a very grievous moraine. Now, we don't know exactly what all that moraine is, but that is a word for disease. A disease would fall upon their livestock. And the Lord shall sever between the cattle of Israel and the cattle of Egypt. And there shall nothing die of all that is the children of Israel's. And the Lord, notice this, appointed a set time, saying, Tomorrow the Lord shall do this thing in the land. This teaches us the reliability of God's judgment. He says, "I'm gonna, you can set your watch by it. I'm going to set a time, and when I say I'm going to act, I'm going to act. There are a great many dates that are set by men and then put on God's calendar. And God don't respect those dates. <laughs> there are a great many dates, date setters throughout history that have said, well, the Lord's going to come back at this time, or the Lord's going to come back at this time, and they think they've got it all puzzled out. they got their integers above their denominators, and they've got a secret language that they've searched it out. Can I just save you all that trouble? The Bible says this, that not even the Son of Man knoweth when He's coming back. He doesn't know the hour. And guess what that Bible is? Miss Diane was giving that poem about this. Guess what that Bible is? It is the Word of God. The Word was made flesh and dwelt amongst us. So I, I, I'm just going to tell you now, I'm going to save you a little help, all right? I'm gonna, and I might hurt your feelings a little bit, but I'm going to help you. If Jesus don't know, it ain't in that Bible. 
You're wasting your time looking for a date or a time. Because if the living Word doesn't know, then the written Word doesn't contain it. There are a great many people that set all these dates and say, well, God's going to do this on this date and that date. Uh, but I just have you know, uh, though God does not keep your calendar, He sure enough keeps His own calendar. When He says something's going to happen, it's going to happen. Very often the things that to us seem to delay and seem to, to tarry are things. We have to remember how God views things. A day is like a thousand years and a thousand years like a day, Peter said. Hey, we ought to count the long suffering of God's salvation to us word. But Peter's whole purpose in saying that was from the beginning of time there have been scoffers and mockers that have said, when is the time of His appearing? And Peter says it may seem like a long time, but He won't come a moment too late. God will come in His proper time. And the judgment of God in your life and mine, we may feel like we've escaped it because a period of time has passed, uh, but God's judgment and God's Word and God's power is a reliable thing. And then look down in verse number 8. The Bible says this, And the Lord said unto Moses and unto Aaron, Take your handsfuls of ashes of the furnace, and let Moses sprinkle it toward the heaven in the sight of Pharaoh. And it shall become small dust in all the land of Egypt, and shall be a boil breaking forth with blames upon man and upon beasts throughout all the land of Egypt. We see in these boils the reason for God's judgment. He tells Moses, take that and cast it up to the heavens. That way when the boils fall upon them, they fall from above. He wants them to understand the reason these things are happening is because they've trespassed a holy God. That the judgment that's coming is not coming from Moses, but it's coming from God. And listen, mark her down. We better make sure that God is who we're living our life in light of because as the Hebrew writer says, it's Him with whom we have to do. He is the, the God that we answer to. He is the one to whom we are to be well-pleasing in His sight. So it teaches us some things about God's judgment, His power, and His Word. What does the text that we've read tonight teach us though? What is the one thing when we read our text? Now, I don't know if it struck you the way it struck me, but there was one particular passage, two verses specifically, that sort of were different than the rest of, of the, the uh, plagues that were presented. Uh, look with me down in verse number 20. Now, you know what the Lord has said here. He's going to bring rain, hail, and fire, and brimstone such as was never seen before in the land of Egypt. Uh, it was going to be something that would be destructive. It would be cataclysmic in nature. But notice what it says down in verse number 20. It says, He that feared the word of the Lord among the servants of Pharaoh made his servants and his cattle flee into the houses. And he that regarded not the word of the Lord left his servants and his cattle in the field. Has it ever occurred to you that when you go down the catalog of plagues that have been given, the, the plague of hail is the first plague for which the average everyday Egyptian had an option to escape. He couldn't do anything about the river being turned to blood. He couldn't do anything to keep the frogs out of his house. Couldn't do anything to keep the lice off of his body or the flies away from him. Couldn't do anything about the disease that would fall upon the cattle. Couldn't do anything about the boils that would arise upon his own flesh. But for the first time, he now has a choice in his response to the judgment of God. I want to preach to you on this thought tonight. Gather your cattle in. Gather your cattle in. You see, they had a choice how they wanted to respond to the Word and promise of God. And how they reacted would tell a lot about their attitude towards the Word of God as it had been given. You know that's true of your life and mine. What we believe about the Bible, our life will say louder than our lips will. 
There's a great many people. In fact, if you were to go and, and, and uh, rummage through the dusty bookshelves of great theological works, you'd find a lot of people completely unregenerate that had made a life study of the field of theology. Uh, men that, that had mastered several languages, men that could give you every single theological term uh, in, in minuteness, in detail, and in great description, uh, men that could read to you the Hebrew, the Greek, uh, as easily as I'm speaking to you English, uh, and yet a great many of them did not even know the God that they claimed to study. They'd made an academic pursuit of it, but they had never made a spiritual commitment towards it. You see, their lips would say one thing, but their life would say something entirely different. Well, here's where we really find out. When we look at a man's life, we find out what he really believes about the Bible. Not what we say, not what we proclaim, not what we affirm, but what we manifest in the way that we live. And I just ask you this, if people couldn't hear your lips and they could only watch your life, would they still think you were a Bible believer? Would they still believe you're a Christian? They just watched the way that you live. Would they still believe that there was something different about you relative to the rest of the world? I've got three simple thoughts I want to give you tonight and we'll be done. Notice first off tonight the presentation of their choice. For the first time, they have a real meaningful choice before them. And I would want you to note first off the reality of that choice. It was not a mirage. It was not a smokescreen. It was not an oasis. In uh, other places, and of course God does distinguish between the Israelites and the Egyptians here, but here even with the Egyptians, He says, you have a choice. If you want to gather your cattle and your servants in, then I'll let you do that. I'll let you protect them. If you choose to reject what I'm saying, then I will respect your autonomy. I will respect your will. I will respect your choice. But it's up to you what you do. You know, we all have a choice as to how we're going to respond to the Word of God. And it is a real choice and it is a sincere choice. Now, I'm speaking particularly to us as children of God tonight. People who have been born again, uh, you have a choice. We talked a little bit about that in the preaching this morning about how a lost person really doesn't have uh, the, the autonomy that they think that they have. They're just sort of dancing to their depravity, just walking according to the course of this world. But you as a child of God, you have a real choice tonight. You can decide whether you believe the Bible or you can decide to reject it. You can decide to obey it. Well, you can decide to spurn it. You have a real meaningful choice in your life. It's not something that God just dangles in front of you uh, like a mirage, like bait. Uh, uh, there's some people that believe that, that, uh, that every choice a person makes is not sincere in nature, but it's just sort of God uh, toying with mankind, giving him the illusion of uh, self-determination. But I don't believe that tonight. I believe once the Son has made you free, you really are free indeed. And you really can make choices in your life. You really can decide whether you're going to follow Him or whether you're not going to follow Him. I see the reality of their choice. Number two, I see the realm of their choices. So what choices did they have? Well, as I see it, they only had two. They could either heed it or they could ignore it. They didn't have any other choice. There was no middle ground. Uh, it would have been madness for them to bring part of their cattle in and leave part of their cattle out. No, they really only had, if they were going to be rational, they really only had two choices. They either accept what's said or they reject what's said. Hey, let me just say this tonight. It's time that God's people quit playing around with the Word of God and either believe it or abandon it. One of the two. Uh, listen, we, we, we better, hey, it's either absolute 
or it's obsolete. There is no ground in between. It's either the Word of God and it ought to be reverenced and it ought to be read and it ought to be obeyed and it should not be toyed with and it should not be defined away. Well, let it dictate our life instead of us dictating its meaning. Or if we don't believe any of those things, let's just quit pretending. Let's just go live like rank infidels and let's just go live according to the, to the impulse of our flesh and the desires of our flesh. Let's quit playing around with this. At least let's not be hypocrites. At least let's be sincere regarding what we believe. They had two choices, but then I want you to notice the requirement of their choice. They had two choices. They would, however, have to choose. They could not play the middle. They couldn't play both sides against each other. They had to choose. Here's what they could not do. They could not remain neutral. They had to either gather the cattle in or leave the cattle out. One of the two. I try to communicate this. I try to convey this to people when I preach. Uh, and this is something the Lord Jesus makes abundantly clear in His interactions with humanity during His earthly ministry. There is no room for neutrality in our, our relationship, our attitude towards Jesus Christ. There are a great many people today that would say, well, I'll just wait a little while. Well, I'll just put it off. Well, I'll just consider a little further. But you understand, as you stand face to face with Jesus Christ, spiritually speaking, in your walk, in your life, you only have one of two choices. You're either going to receive Him or you're going to reject Him. Now, I hope if you reject Him, I hope you get another chance. I don't know if you will. I don't know if you won't. But staying neutral is not even a possibility. It's not just that it's impolite. It's impossible. To say I'll wait a little longer is to say I don't want you right now. It may be predicated on the idea that hopefully you'll want Him in your life later, but you don't get to decide that. You don't get to decide when your heart stops beating. You don't get to decide when your life ends. This may be your last opportunity and you will choose just as I will choose. Every time a man is confronted with truth, he will make a choice about the truth he's confronted with. We're either given light or darkness. We're either going to walk in that light or we're going to continue in darkness. There is no middle ground. I see the presentation of their choice. But then notice the considerations of their choice. So I thought to myself, what would determine the choice that they make? How, how would they decide what they're going to do? What considerations would affect their choice? And I thought about three things. The first I thought about is what they saw as valuable. So a man might choose to ignore this if he didn't really love his cattle, if it didn't really matter to him whether he lost them or whether he didn't. They cherished their cattle and they wanted to protect them. You know, I found in our life that whether we obey the Word of God or don't obey the Word of God, it shows a lot about what we cherish in our life, what's valuable to us. If we really believe that spiritual matters are important, then we're going to heed the Word of God. I'll tell you why a great many people don't obey the Word of God is just they're so carnal, they don't care what happens in their life. The things that should matter to them don't matter to them. They're of no importance to them. They don't value the things they should value. We ought to value our testimony. We ought to value the stewardship over people's lives that God has entrusted us with, whether that of a parent over children, uh, that of a spouse towards their other spouse, uh, that of just a, a, a church member with your brothers and sisters in Christ. We've been given a stewardship. And whether or not we value that can be shown by how we protect it, how we cherish it, how we nourish it. I, I thought to myself, well, what they saw as valuable would dictate it. And there's a great many people that don't obey the Word of God because they don't value the things of God. There's a reason Paul had to say, set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth. You know why? This is going to sound real deep. You ready? Put on your waders. We're going to go deep. You know why you have to say that? 
Because we have a tendency to set our affection on things on the earth. That's who we are as human beings. And so he had to give that exhortation because we are so prone to get our focus on this life and to dismiss the life to come. He, 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 I would say what they saw as valuable would be one of those, one of those things. But then I thought about this. They might make their decision based on what they saw as vulnerable. If they believed that their cattle would be slain if they did not obey the Word of God, then maybe that would prompt them to obey the Word of God. In fact, I would say this, that is probably the great motivating factor in what they did. Because they loved their cattle and because they took God serious, they heeded the warning that was given to them. So in our life, there can be a couple reasons we won't live in obedience to the Word of God. One of them can be that we don't value the things that we ought to value. But another can be this, even though we do value them, we have convinced ourselves that we are invulnerable to the punishment or judgment of God. We've said this to ourselves, it'll never happen to me. Hey boy, I can tell you, I can show you wrecked life after wrecked life of people that thought it will never happen to them. You know, the Word of God is no respecter of persons. God is no respecter of persons. The same thing that wrecked them, my friend, can wreck you if you go the same path that they go. We are all but one heartbeat, one wayward step away from throwing away our life and being that person that we are with pity in our hearts requesting that God would get a hold of their life. We're just that close to it. You see, the only difference between the cattle in the field and the cattle in the house was that the cattle in the field was in the field. They were out. That was the only difference. It wasn't that those cattle out in the field were any dumber than the cattle that were in the house. The only difference is one was in and the other was out. You know the only difference between you and them? Say, who's them, preacher? I'm talking about those people that we say, man, pray for that person. Their life is a mess. Their life is falling to pieces. Their marriage is falling apart. Their kids have gone to hell. I mean, their life is just absolutely destroyed. You say, preacher, what's the difference? Some stayed in and some got out. Some heeded the Word of God and some didn't. Some took God's Word seriously and others played games with it. What they saw as vulnerable, I think, would affect things. But then I thought about this. Maybe what they saw as visible would be something that changed things in their consideration. In other words, what others thought of their actions no doubt factored into their choice. There may have been some that acted because others were watching. They might have looked around and said this, I believe God's Word is true. And I want my neighbors to see that I take it seriously in hopes that they'll take it seriously because I don't want them to experience the loss and devastation that is sure to come to those that do not heed God's Word. So I'm going to leave them an example that they know that they're not the only ones that believe God's Word and God's promise and God's impending doom and judgment. I'm going to show them that there's somebody else that takes the Word of God serious. And I want them to see by my example that I believe what the Word of God says. But you know, there could have been others that were afraid to act because others were watching. There could have been some that said, well man, if I heed God's Word, what are my neighbors going to think about me? They're going to think I'm some kind of lunatic. They're going to think I'm some kind of fanatic. And you say, well preacher, no one would think that. I mean, there had already been six plagues that had fallen upon Egypt. No one would think them a fanatic for accepting God's Word. Oh, you mean the same way that we've got 6,000 years of human history that attest to the reality of God, His power and His working, and still today people think you're a fanatic if you go to church on Wednesday nights? Here's the truth of the matter. You're going to have to make up your mind that if you're, if what others think about you matters to you at all, it is only going to matter to you in as much as it can be an ability to point others to Jesus Christ. 
That's how it needs to matter to you. Uh, Not in nervousness and anxiety, worried that someone might criticize you. I'd say this, if it wasn't for the fact that the hail is getting ready to fall, maybe there'd be room to be neurotic about it. But if we really believe that the Word of God is true, and we're dealing in eternal matters, we're dealing in real things in our life. I'm talking about the hope and help of our families, our churches, our children, our marriages. There ain't time to be worried about what everybody else thinks and try to appease everyone else. And if you're going to worry about what they think, here's how you ought to worry about it. You ought to look at it and say, boy, I hope they don't go down that wrong path. And maybe by my testimony, I can do something to encourage them to choose the right things. I I see the considerations of their choice, but then I want you to notice that I'm done tonight the revelation of their choice. What would their choice reveal to God, to themselves, and to others? There's two things. One, it would reveal the sincerity of their faith. Did they really believe God's Word? Now, a man could say he believed God's Word, but if he wouldn't even take time to get his cattle in, how could you really say he believes God's Word? Listen, I, I, I know that the faith of Christ, not my faith in Christ, but the faith of Christ would stand up in the day of fierce persecution and martyrdom. Not me, but that of Him that is in me would give witness in that day. But we ain't even talking about that. We're just talking about going to church, living righteously. We're talking about reading your Bible. We're just talking about witnessing to people. We're not even talking about those things that are more severe, more dramatic, and more dangerous. We're just talking about living different from the world around you. How can you say you believe the Word of God when nothing in your life conforms to the Word of God? How can you say you believe it's true when nothing in your life testifies to the truth of it? You can say it all day long. but I And listen, I'm not trying to be rude when I say this, but people don't care what you say. They care what you do. And listen, God, He don't care what you say if what you say does not line up with what you do. It would reveal the sincerity of their faith. And then number two, it would reveal the strength of their faith. Not only did they believe in God's Word, but did they believe in it enough to change their lives? Here I think is where a fundamental breakdown takes place with many people today. I'm talking about the kind of people that sit in Walridge Baptist Church. We will intellectually affirm the truth of the Word of God. But we are too stubborn to yield our life to its transforming power. We believe that it's true the same way we believe that 2 plus 2 equals 4. We accept and affirm the reality of it, but we won't submit our lives unto its authority and allow God to transform us through it and by it. You see, it'd be one thing for a man to sit back in his house and say, oh yes, I believe, I've seen six plagues, I believe what God says is true. He may genuinely believe that another plague is on the way, But he sure enough don't believe it in the right way if that don't get him off his hind end and cause him to get his cattle in from the field. And in your life and mine, we can we can have all of the, what's the old saying? Leonard Ravenhill, you say you can have doctrine straight as a gun barrel and just as hollow. We can have all of the intellectual affirmation that we want. But it don't amount to nothing if it won't change the way we live our lives. God didn't come to educate us. He came to elevate us. He didn't come to make us more academic. He came to make us spiritual. He didn't just come to give us a body of dogma. Has it ever dawned on you that one of these days we won't get to heaven and have the perfect knowledge of God? If it was all just about filling our head with facts. And listen, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not campaigning for stupidity. Amen. It don't need no help. The stupid movement is, is, that train is chugging along in society. 
I'm not advocating for us to not study the Word of God. But I'm saying if the only goal was to fill our head with facts and knowledge, why didn't He just save us and take us on to heaven and give us a glorified mind where we'd have all them facts and knowledge? No, you see, the reality is He has saved us here where we are, when we are, so that He can change our lives so that we might touch the lives of others. So what about it in our life? We can say all we want, but is there some area of disobedience? Have you got cows still out in the field? You might have most of the herd in, but have you got a few stragglers? Have you got some areas of your life? And Listen, you're here on a Sunday night. I'm talking about first night of time change. I knew you'd be here this morning. You got an extra hour of sleep. I didn't figure nobody would show up tonight. I mean, I didn't, I didn't even, I'm just making this up as I go. I didn't even have a sermon prepared. Amen. You're here on a Sunday night on time change Sunday. I'm pleased. I'm encouraged by that. I know you probably got most of the cattle in, but you probably got some stragglers too. Some little areas of your life where God's dealt with you, but you've said, no, thank you. I'll go my own way. Now here's the question. Do you really believe the Bible's true? Do you really believe that Jesus is who He says He is? Do you really believe that when God says something, He means it? If you really do, why don't you prove it to Him? It ain't about proving it to me. I don't even want to know what God's dealing with you about. It's about proving it to Him. Why don't you prove it to Him by calling them cattle in? before it's too late, before you bring ruin into your life. Let's bow together tonight as a musician comes to play, the altar's open. It's time to get serious with God. We don't know how much time we have. I don't know how much time I have. And you may think you know how much time you have, but you don't. None of us do. And it's time now to get serious with God. God did some things in your heart and life. Are you serious enough about yourself, about your eternity, about your walk with God, about your reality, that you'd be willing to come to Him and get that matter settled tonight. If you are, won't you slip out of your seat and come find a place down here. Let God work in your heart and life. We'll take a Bible and pray with you, show you uh, any verses that need to be showed to you. But won't you find a place down here? And there may be somebody that'd say, Preacher, I've got most of the cattle in. I feel like I've got most of my life where it needs to be. But if I had to be honest, there are a few things that God's been dealing with me about. Hey, don't leave them out and let destruction come into your life. Go ahead and come on down to this altar and get those cattle gathered in tonight. and Get your life right where it needs to be with the Lord. Father, bless this invitation. May it magnify the Lord Jesus. We ask it in His name.